folks, and welcome to DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray, and this is episode 51. A lot of people seem to think that the goal of safety is to save lives and prevent injuries. It's obvious on the surface, but ridiculous once you think about it. The most dangerous thing anyone can do is be born, because life has a 100% fatality rate. There's nothing you, I, or anyone else outside a cybernetics lab can do about it. The best we can ever do is shuffle around the timing and cause of death a little bit, and even then only at a population statistics level. Doctors and nurses don't save lives either, but at least they are usually directly altering the course of life for specific individuals, and in most cases the patient has a lot of autonomy when it comes to the decisions being made. Not so for safety. I think it's worthwhile sometimes to seriously stop and ask ourselves what we're trying to achieve. Everyone is still going to die. Many of them will die in painful and undignified ways. What's the benefit? What's the social or individual good that comes from them not dying on our watch? Is it simply that we don't want responsibility? Is safety management really just a way for business to protect itself against payouts or higher insurance costs? That would explain a lot, really, if you think of a safety management system as a way of offloading blame rather than improving work conditions. But I don't buy it. In my experience, most safety practitioners genuinely care about their staff and customers as people, not as legal liabilities. So, is it to do with justice? Is there something particularly unfair about an injury or death at work or as a passenger on mass transport that makes it worse than, say, dying of old age, disease or a high-risk recreational activity? That sort of makes sense too. But then why would we ever blame someone for their own injury, except as some futile attempt to excuse our own failings? Maybe it's a protective instinct. Whilst people are in our care, we want to take care of them. Sure, bad things can and will happen when they're not in our care, but we take responsibility for the things we can control. The problem with this point of view is that surely care should extend well beyond preventing injury and death. And if you ask someone at your office or work site, who is it who makes work less frustrating and more enjoyable? Would they really answer that the safety team it does? If safety makes work uncomfortable, inconvenient and annoying, that's a pretty heavy price to pay. Our staff and customers may die somewhere else instead of on our turf, but they'll also die somewhere they're a lot happier. In my opinion, safety only makes sense as a service. Being safe is a desire of our customers and staff, along with getting from A to B and performing fulfilling and rewarding work. On average, the less risk people take, the longer and healthier their life will be. So reducing unnecessary risk is part of treating other human beings well, treating them like other human beings. 
And along with that attitude comes a recognition that exposing people to unnecessary risk is not the only bad thing or even the worst thing that we can do to them. Removing their autonomy, reducing their freedom, and imposing bureaucracy are also not great ways to treat humans like humans. Every time I go through a security screening at an airport, I feel a tiny bit safer and also a great deal violated and mistrusted. On balance, my life really isn't any better for the security, and I'm still going to die. As a safety professional, I'd like to do better than that. I'd like to believe that I can make people safer, but also happier. There shouldn't be a personal price to pay for being safe. But there's no sense crying over every mistake You just keep on trying till you run out of cake And the science gets done and you make a neat plan For the people who are still alive Okay, let's move on to the accident for today. The Iowa class of battleships consisting of USS Iowa, USS New Jersey, USS Missouri, and USS Wisconsin, are some of the most individually powerful war machines ever built. During World War II, they were equipped with nine 16-inch guns, 25-inch guns, and 130 smaller anti-aircraft guns. Just to put that into perspective, the main gun on a modern Anzac-class frigate is a single 5-inch gun. The comparison isn't entirely fair because tactical intelligence and precision aim are far more important than the size of gun for a modern ship. But in terms of sheer firepower, the Iowa class didn't just rule the waves, they ruled anywhere within 30 kilometres of a wave. The shell from a 16-inch gun weighed around a metric tonne. There was a high-explosive shell for shore bombardment, an armour-piercing shell for firing at other ships, and a 20 kiloton nuclear artillery shell, just in case any nearby cities looked particularly threatening. USS Iowa, lead ship of the class, served in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, mainly in support of aircraft carrier operations in World War II. She was deactivated in 1949, and then reactivated in 1951 for the Korean War. In 1958, USS Iowa was mothballed. Fast forward to the 1980s, and the US Navy was rapidly expanding under Reagan, ready to fight World War III. USS Iowa was, was recommissioned and fitted with harpoon and tomahawk missiles, phalanx Gatling guns, and a flight of reconnaissance drones. Despite all of the cool new toys, the refit was never properly completed. Neither the engines nor the big guns were fully repaired, and the Navy board inspection was skipped. When the inspection was finally carried out, a couple of operations later, Iowa failed. The Admiral in charge recommended that she be taken out of service. Instead, a bit of a push was made to repair the deficiencies, and commanding the Iowa became an exercise in trade-offs devoting funds and repair time to whichever issues were most pressing for current operational needs. In 1989, during a live fire exercise, there was an explosion on board the Iowa, killing 47 sailors. 
There are two different stories about the explosion. Let's start by describing the situation and then I'll give you the stories. As I've already hinted, these turrets were big. Rather than being attached to the ship, each turret was essentially a multi-storey round tower slotted into a giant hole in which it could rotate freely. If you ever tipped the battleship upside down, the turrets would just slide out. Each turret had three 20 metre long guns, all on the top deck, and then with four or five decks below that. Each gun was basically a long rifled tube, open at the firing end, with a closable breech at the other end. The projectile was loaded first and pushed up the tube with an electrohydraulic rammer. Then six bags of powder in turn were rammed up behind the projectile. Each powder bag included stacks of explosive pellets and a small amount of black powder for igniting them. Once all the powder bags were in place, the breach was closed and the gun was ready to fire. It could fire maybe twice every minute. It took quite some time to load each of these steps. The most dangerous time for this sort of gun is while the powder bags are being loaded. If one of them explodes early while the breach is still open, much of the explosive force, enough to throw a ton of projectile over 30 kilometers, blasts backwards down into the turret instead. The USS Mississippi had two explosions of this type in 1924 and in 1943. In each case, it was because there was hot material left in the barrel after a previous firing. The USS Missouri had a turret fire in 1904 for similar reasons, but without a full explosion. On April 19, 1989, on board the USS Iowa, the center gun of number two turret was being loaded. It had five bags of propellant inside the gun. These exploded. Heroic action by the surviving turret crew prevented the subsequent fire from spreading, but 47 of the gun crew members were killed. In the immediate aftermath of the accident, the Navy ruled out all of the previous cases of turret explosions. This was the first firing of the gun that morning, so there was no blowback or debris from previous firings. There was no evidence of an electrical short or anything else that could have ignited the powder. There were, however, hints that the gun captain was an unhappy man. By digging into his personal life, they were able to conduct a form of psychological autopsy. He had previously been close friends with another member of the gun crew. This friend had a troubled past with run-ins with the law. Both men subscribed to macho magazines. There was graffiti in the latrines making fun of them, and they'd been teasing that they were gay. Recently, the other guy had gotten married, and they'd grown apart. It all added up. Clearly, the two men had been in a homosexual relationship, but had broken up. Depressed and suicidal, the gun captain had sabotaged his own gun in a selfish act of self-destruction, which had taken the lives of 46 of his comrades in arms. How had he done it? Close investigation of the gun barrel revealed debris that must have come from a timing device. When re-examination showed that it couldn't actually be a timing device, the projectile was swabbed and chemicals were found that indicated a homemade explosive mixture that would detonate under pressure. 
These were clearly not things that you'd find in a gun, including brake fluid and a plastic food bag. Case closed. After considerable media and public outcry, case reopened. The General Accounting Office, charged with investigating the investigation, asked Sandia Labs to take a look at the physical evidence. The chemical remains, supposed to be conclusive evidence of an improvised explosive, were found not only in the gun that had exploded, but in all the other battleship guns. The brake fluid, which was listed as one of the ingredients of the explosive, turned out to be brake-free, a lubricant used to remove the remains of the projectile from the damaged turret. The supposed plastic food bag was a single plastic fragment that could have come from the projectile, or could even have been a piece of Dacron from the gun swab covered in brake-free. The Sandia team also found that the assumptions used by the Navy to rule out other causes were invalid. Whilst the gun Navy knew that the gun had been overrammed, they used various physical clues to determine the overramming was slow and insignificant. In contrast, the Sandia team provided a plausible scenario where there was a high-speed overram, which combined with a sensitive arrangement of propellant in the packed bags had created an explosion. So the ram that was used to push the powder bags into place just far more quickly than it was supposed to shoved the powder bags together hard and one of the powder bags ignited, set all the others off. That was the proposal. Meanwhile, the government audit office was examining management and maintenance on board the Iowa. They found that the old battleships were an unattractive billet, with smaller chances of promotion and less opportunity to play with state-of-the-art equipment. They were also given less priority in making sure their key technical positions were filled. As a result, staff were generally less well-trained, had a higher rate of disciplinary problems, and were often acting in positions above their pay grade. So we have an explanation why the gun crew could have made the sorts of mistakes that were posited in the overramming scenario. Now, just to be clear, we don't know what caused the explosion on the Iowa. There's no evidence to even suggest on a balance of probabilities that one particular scenario deserves to be the official story. However, we have a very good illustration of post-accident hindsight thinking. A large traumatic event occurs. It's not just a tragedy for the 47 sailors and their families, but for an entire close-knit community. At first, the families on shore hear about the explosion, but they won't even know until the ship docks whether their own loved ones are safe. So everyone on board the ship and all of their family get hurt by this event. Early investigation turns to the obvious explanations. The turret exploded, so what sorts of things do we know cause turrets to explode? One by one, these explanations are ruled out. So the obvious causes are checked and they couldn't have happened. What's left? We need an explanation. Without an explanation, these great symbols of American projection of power are suspected instead of being outdated death traps. They're tainted. We need something we can fix, or at least someone we can blame. A solution is offered. 
a young, introverted, picked upon, and conveniently dead gun captain. Unlike technical causes, human behaviour is very hard to rule out. It's very easy, though, to find little snippets that confirm the emerging picture. It's even possible, if we look hard enough, to find physical evidence that matches the theory. We're on dangerous ground, though, because we're building a story about what's possible, not what's probable. The physical evidence is consistent with a homemade bomb. But it's also consistent with a normal gun barrel that doesn't have a homemade bomb. It's worth noting that most of the Sandia investigation doesn't actually contradict the Navy investigation. It just shows that there was a different possibility. That shows the problem with this whole way of thinking. It's very easy to create a theory and find evidence to match it. The only thing that gives such a theory strength, though, is the absence of other convincing theories. Once there's a second theory in play, that motivates us to actually test the theories beyond checking if they're possible. That's why shows like Mythbusters are entertainment, not scientific scepticism. They try really hard to show that a story is possible and declare it plausible if they succeed. That doesn't mean the story ever actually happened, and if they fail, it doesn't mean the story didn't happen, just that they didn't know the mechanism. Actually, Sandia Labs did reach one interesting conclusion. As well as looking at the scraps of evidence to see whether they were part of an explosive device, they also asked what evidence they would expect to find if a homemade device had exploded. Neither they nor the Navy found such evidence. That's how you test a theory. You make predictions and go looking. You don't try to fit the existing data to the theory. Of course, that's easier said than done when you're looking at something that happened in the past. Even our physical reconstructions of accidents can be highly suspect, which gives an indication of how much more suspect our explanations about individual humans and organisational failures should be. To finish for today, let me share some more details from my current favourite book, the Staircase by John Templer. Today's topic, where not to put stairs. There are all sorts of ways stairs can be made safer or more dangerous. One of these is to stop and think before even using stairs. Stairs are inherently more dangerous than level ground or even sloping ground. Do you really need a stair? That question is particularly relevant for homes and buildings where elderly or less able people are likely to be present. Also, as Templer points out, a slow, deliberate, unstable or tottering gait can be acquired not just through age or injury, but through the consumption of alcohol. Stairs and bars should not mix. Stairs always go to and from somewhere. They should not be used to connect inappropriate locations. For example, if people are carrying food or heavy objects, stairs are a bad idea. Putting stairs between work areas or between food service and dining areas is not a good decision. There's a 1958 study that showed that 8% of stair victims, at least those in the study, hadn't intended to take the stairs in the first place, 
So concealed staircases may be aesthetically pleasing, but a fall is far more offensive than an ugly and obvious flight of stairs. Doors near steps are particularly dangerous, as are flights of less than three steps. Requiring a slight detour to get to steps rather than having them flow smoothly down from other areas is a good idea. We see here a contradiction between what's aesthetic, what's architecturally pleasing, and what's necessary to make stairs safe. So you might want stairs to be discreet, you might want them to easily flow from area to area, but in fact to make them safe you want to make the stairs obvious and you want to keep them a little bit out of the way. Stair configuration doesn't seem to be a big factor though, or at least there's not enough evidence to decide that it is. So this sort of contradicts common wisdom that spiral staircases, winding staircases, bent staircases are dangerous. In fact, spiral staircases, or more precisely helical staircases, are actually relatively safe. They don't induce more falls and the falls aren't as serious. If anything, very long straight flights of stairs are worse than stairs with turns and windings. There are a few studies showing that these long straight stairs have more injuries and worse injuries. There are a couple of studies going the other way and recommending against dog legs. If you're going to turn a staircase though, you need to choose a direction. In the US, there's a keep right norm, so clockwise stairs help people keep to the norm instead of colliding. Templar also asks designers to consider what can be seen from the stairs. Views that distract, including changes in illumination, are a problem. So you know that movie scene where a girl dressed to the nines and coming down a long flight of stairs catches sight of her bow and falls, only to be caught in his arms? That's probably a scientifically accurate safety training clip. Except for the part where she ends up at the prom instead of in the hospital. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Thanks to Guy and Paul, the newest Patreon.com subscribers, and to regular star supporters Daniel, Hunter and Pratrick. You too can be a supporter of DisasterCast for as little as a dollar a month or a dollar an episode. Alternatively, you could send feedback to feedback at disastercast.co.uk or write a glowing recommendation on LinkedIn, iTunes or your favourite social media platform. Till next time, avoid the stairs, they're out to get you. Keep safe.